Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for worship. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Chaplain Sean Denzer. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain for the International Center of the LCMS here in St. Louis, Missouri. Chaplain Denzer, welcome back to Concord Matters. It's great to be back, Sean. It is certainly a great honor and joy to have you back. Looking forward to this conversation here. And obviously, a real honor to have you on for this episode because you're the director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate. So if I'm going to do a show on Concord Matters for Worship, it would make sense to have you who directs the worship for the Senate, right? Or at least provide some guidance for us. But certainly a gifted theologian and uh, faithful pastor in your own right as well. So certainly an honor to have you on. But as we jump into this topic then, getting going here, when we talk about worship, what is it we mean by that? Because I think that there's a lot of ideas out there and different denominations and church bodies would have differing opinions on what that is defined by, but get us into this by talking about what is it we're talking about when we're talking about worship. You're right. Uh, If I'm the director of it, I probably better know the answer to that question. But really, the answer to the question is, this is a really disambiguated term, right? Like Wikipedia, when you go on there, you know, you got all the other options of what does worship mean. Worship is really nebulous. It's nebulous in English. It's also nebulous when you start to look at the languages that matter for the church, like Latin and Greek and German for us as Lutherans, and as we look at the confessions. So I think what's going to be important for us today is to talk about how we use words and language in the first place. I'm going to introduce two really important Greek words that end up being used to describe the way we talk in all languages. And these are two words that actually get used in the confessions in a couple different places. And that's metonymy. Metonymy, you can hear it's a change, a meta, a change of name. And that is when we substitute one name or noun to refer to another thing. An example of this would be sometimes we say, what is it that saved us, Sean? It's the cross. And somebody might say, no, that's not true. Jesus saves us, right? Or God saves us. Well, the cross saves us. What do we mean by when we say cross? We actually mean the cross instead of saying the death of Jesus Christ who was on that cross, right? But everybody knows what they mean, right? Oh, yeah, the cross. That stands in for the whole event. And then the other word is synecdoche. And this is where you use just a part to refer to the whole. In a way, that's what I just did. If I say the cross saved us, what Jesus did on his cross saved us. And you might say, well, yes, But doesn't his resurrection have something to do with this? Doesn't his birth in our flesh have to do something with this? And yes, all of it does. In fact, we've used the word cross, just a part of Christ's work for us, to stand in for the whole work of Christ throughout his whole life. 
And that's called synecdoche. It's a form of metonymy. So now coming back to your question of what is worship, we use the word worship in so many different ways, don't we? In the scriptures, Paul talks about how our proper act of worship is, in fact, the whole life that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices for God. Now, I'm the director not just of church services or of hymns and liturgy. I'm the director of every single thing that Christians do, right? Obviously, that's not exactly what they've called me to do here. But part of our worship includes then the praise, the thanksgiving that we give to God, which we do in all sorts of circumstances in our life. Maybe it's literally by singing a hymn of praise in church. Maybe it's also by serving our neighbor, which we do in thanksgiving for what God has done for us. So you see how worship already is a very expansive term. In its most literal in English, it means to ascribe worth. I think you can hear that in there, worship. And that's a very limited thing. That's now just what we might call praise. To say, Lord, we praise the Lord. Alleluia means praise the Lord. There you go. That's what worship is. Then we also use the word worship to describe a very particular aspect of our lives and our reasonable service to God, which is, again, that word service. The church service. When we gather between a certain time on Sunday morning and a certain other time on Sunday morning, we call that worship. And that probably is what I've been called to do here at the Missouri Synod, to be the director of our church services or our liturgy, our hymns, and everything that has to do with that. But if we were only to talk about the service as worship, then we get into other confusion. So I think we want to discuss all of these terms together today. We want to look at what the confessions have to say and how they use these terms so we can both distinguish them from each other, but also so we can make the necessary connections that are all there, which is the reason why we tend to use these terms, service, worship, divine service, or even church interchangeably. I think that's really helpful to start with those definitions. And really, as my wife likes to bring up, I think it's at least every day in our household, she says, words mean things. And it's true. And when we understand what those words mean, then it starts to inform how we live this out. And we have a great treasure, as you pointed to already, in our Lutheran confessions, that as we've laid the foundation in this series that we're doing, What we're trying to address here is that the confessions are not just these static, you know, theological documents that are there for the sake of academic, you know, those who like to read about theology or work as pastors and things like that. But it it really does permeate our entire Christian life. And so even as you said, when we understand these terms and as we're going to talk about them, it really draws our whole Christian life together. So with that, do you want to go ahead and jump into where some of the confessional places, the places in our Lutheran confessions that we're going to start addressing here in terms of what we're talking about when it comes to worship and informing how we understand and live that out? Absolutely. And I think if we're fortunate enough, we're going to have multiple chances, Sean, to talk about worship from different angles. So today we're really going to do the high level. We're going to try and talk about worship, divine service, church, what that means. I hesitate to use the word theory or theology as if it were separate from what we're doing. But we're going to see that the Lutheran confessions and our perspective as Lutherans is that getting to the bottom of what this term worship really means at its heart or what's the thing that kicks it all off. How do we know when we're truly worshiping and then how do we know what to distinguish, how to distinguish the things that are just attending our worship and not necessarily the worship themselves. That'll all come from getting the kernel of this. I think the place to start might be the apology to the 
the Augsburg Confession, section four. This is the section on justification by faith. It's one of the most important sections. In fact, it's a little convoluted in some of your confessions. It might be labeled as two because we have to get right into it uh, as we talked about original sin, what's going on there, and immediately we have to start talking about what is this justification that we have. Uh, And I think if we start at paragraph 49, and maybe even go all the way through paragraph 60 if we're able to do that. This will really help. But I think if we just read this first little section, Article 4 of the Apology, paragraph 49, is a perfect place to start. I'll let you read that, John. Sure. Well, and I'll go ahead and take that away here. So this is, once again, from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, which is the edition that we use on this show, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And Article 4 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, beginning with paragraph 49. The difference between this faith and the righteousness of the law can be easily discerned. Faith is the divine service, the tria that receives the benefits offered by God. The righteousness of the law is the divine service, Latria, that offers to God our merits. God wants to be worshipped through faith so that we receive from him those things he promises and offers. Faith means not only a knowledge of the history, but the kind of faith that believes in the promise. Paul plainly testifies about this when he says in Romans 4 verse 16, This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. He judges that the promise cannot be received unless it comes through faith. Therefore, he puts them together as things that belong to one another. He connects the promise and faith. It will be easy to decide what faith is if we consider the creed, where this article certainly stands the forgiveness of sins. It is not enough to believe that Christ was born, suffered, was raised again, unless we add also this article, which is the purpose of the history, the forgiveness of sins. To this article, the rest must be referred. Namely, that for Christ's sake, and not because of our merits, forgiveness of sins is given to us. For what need was there that Christ was given for our sins if our merits can make satisfaction for our sins? Whenever we speak of justifying faith, we must keep in mind that these three objects belong together, the promise, grace, and Christ's merits as the price and atonement. The promise is received through faith. Grace excludes our merits and means that the benefit is offered only through mercy. Christ's merits are the price because there must be a certain atonement for our sins. Scripture frequently cries out for mercy. The Holy Fathers often say that we are saved by mercy. Therefore, whenever mercy is mentioned, we must keep in mind that faith, which receives the promise of mercy, is required there. Again, whenever we speak about faith, we want an object of faith to be understood, namely the promised mercy. For faith justifies and saves, not because it is a worthy work in itself, but only because it receives the promised mercy. Throughout the prophets and the Psalms, this worship, this Latria, is highly praised even though the law does not teach the free forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament fathers knew the promise about Christ, that God for Christ's sake wanted to forgive sins. They understood that Christ would be the price for our sins. They knew that our works are not a price for so great a matter. So they received free mercy and forgiveness of sins by faith, just as the saints in the New Testament. To this point belong those frequent repetitions about mercy and faith that appear in the Psalms and the prophets. For example, Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here David confesses his sins and does not list his merits. He adds, But with you there is forgiveness. Here he comforts himself by his trust in God's mercy, and he refers to the promise. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. That's verse 5. 
This means because we have promised the forgiveness of sins, I am sustained by your promise. Therefore, the fathers also were justified, not by the law, but by the promise and faith. It is amazing that the adversaries diminish faith to such a degree, even though they see that it is everywhere praised as a great service. For example, Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. God wants himself to be known. He wants himself to be worshipped so that we receive benefits from him and receive them because of his mercy, not because of our merits. This is the richest consolation in all afflictions. The adversaries ban such consolation when they diminish and disparage faith and teach only that by means of works and merits, people interact with God. What a beautiful section from our Lutheran Confessions. Well spells out exactly the kind of focus that I'm looking for in this series, as we've discussed in kind of our setup episodes, this is about the care of souls. And you see that reflected here so beautifully. It's all about receiving mercy and benefits and blessing from God, relating back to that chief doctrine upon which the church stands and falls, the doctrine of justification. Absolutely. And this really does capture so much, right? It's talking about the forgiveness of sins, this giving of mercy, the speaking and and delivering of mercy to the Christian conscience with bringing David and his confession in, right? We see that he doesn't rely on his works to try and make up for his sins, but he looks for mercy. This is what all the prophets in the Old Testament, as well as the saints in the New Testament, are looking at. They find it in Christ. It goes into detail even on the atonement, the fact that this promise, this grace, is rooted in and is delivering the merits of not us, but of Jesus. Uh, and, and the merit is won by his death and by his resurrection. But we're going to and I am saying this with my tongue in my cheek, we're going to hijack this whole section on justification by grace through faith for Christ's sake. We're going to hijack it for worship. And we're going to do that because Melanchthon, in his explanation, has brought that word in. He's attached the word worship. And this is the German word, and they even want to define it in the Greek and Latin word here, latria, that they bring in there. The German word is divine service or Gottesdienst. We'd say divine service in English. And this is the word that they are using for worship. And you see that they also have the general word for worship. But how is worship defined here? He says the worship that the scriptures are concerned with is, is the worship of faith, that faith itself is worship. Faith that does what? That is receiving the benefits offered by God, that is receiving from God the things that he offers and he promises. That's what worship is going to be at its foundational level for us as Christians, us as Lutherans who confess. Once again, this just makes the point that as you read a document like this, you might think, well, that's a fine academic pursuit to read the Lutheran confessions. But when you actually read it, it's like, no, they're actually concerned about our life, and especially how we receive eternal life, which can only be by the forgiveness of sins. And so when we understand our worship as, and this is maybe something important to talk about too, is we sometimes talk about the direction of worship. Mm -hmm. And especially in our American context, we seem to have a wrong understanding of our direction in worship. It seems to be a lot of times it will be talked about worship as us praising God. And you've already brought out, we can sing a hymn of praise, certainly. I mean, the Tadeum is a beautiful hymn of praise talking all about what God has done. And it certainly glorifies God to sing that. But 
At the same time, the primary focus of this is what we receive from God. Precisely, and that's what they're arguing against the opponents here, which would be the Roman Catholic Church in particular, is that we have to make sure we get our definition of worship, I'll use that in the most general possible way here, correct. And we have to realize that while there are many things that go into what we would call a worship service, we should not become confused about what is primary and what the relationship is between us and God in this whole interaction. And so we come up on a problem for us English speakers right away, and that is that the word worship in English is so geared toward that second thing, that praise that we offer to God, or even that service to our neighbor, which is a praise of God. What Melanchthon calls here the righteousness of the law. There's a righteousness of the law. There's the doing of good works that Christians are very interested in, and praising God is one of those good works. But to think that those are the things that make us right before him, that by doing these works or by offering him praise, we're going to be buttering him up, we're going to be improving our status with him, we're going to be righteous before him, justified for his sake. That's to have confused the entire thing. And that's why we find this first and probably most important discussion of worship, not in some article about the church or about the mass or about the ceremonies, but we find it right in the article of justification. Because if we haven't gotten that straight, then we will not understand how our worship goes. If we have some time, I'd like to just talk about this word Godestinst or divine service, which the confessions put forward as perhaps a better term. And, and we don't have a very great term equivalent for this in English, so we've adopted divine service, and that's fine. But again, just as with the word worship in general, we also use the word divine service in different ways. Broadly, and this is the way it's using it here, divine service refers to all worship, and that's chiefly faith. The divine service that we care about most is that faith is receiving the benefits that God has. And if you want to ask the question, who's doing the serving here? It's not us in this case. It's God. If you want to ask what humans are doing the service, it's the pastor at this point who is delivering. He's being an ambassador. He's being a, the table servant who is delivering what God has to give to his people. And that's what makes it a latria, a public divine service, that God is delivering his gifts to us by means of his pastors. But with that then, of course, all the works, all the attendant good works and praise belong as well. Now, we use the word divine service very narrowly as well, and, and so did the Germans, so did our confessors before us, to simply use it as a word for worship service. The Hauptgottesdienst, the chief divine service, would be the main service of the week, Sunday morning, usually with Holy Communion. But they'd also use that word for any Vesper service, for just when we're getting together to praise God or to hear a sermon, that'd be Gottesdienst, divine service as well. Now, in our circles, in the Missouri Synod, especially in the last two hymnals that we've published, we've reserved this word divine service exclusively, it seems, for the service with Holy Communion, what in the confessions is often called the Mass, the service with communion. We call it divine service now. But even that is a little nar more narrow than we want to get yet, because th the focus here is what you mentioned, that divine service is perhaps preferable to the word worship, because it allows us to emphasize that the most primary thing is faith receiving the gifts that God is serving us with, out of which are thanksgiving and praise, which are not merits of eternal life, but are the fruits of that faith. These all flow. And it is important, as you said, about we want to emphasize the receiving of the gifts. And I like the move to using divine service. But on that narrowness, I think perhaps we have gotten a little too narrow in limiting those gifts 
to certainly a chief and important way that we receive God's gifts, which is the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. But we've kind of narrowed that term to only being with that. When we understand rightly that the Lord's Supper as the sacraments in general, so obviously baptism as well, is nothing but receiving God's word in visible, tangible, real ways. That's the way we talk about the sacraments. It's the word made visible, tangible, and real. So anytime we gather together and receive God's word, which is what we do in a matins or a vespers or those other services as well, even just in the, the Lutheran service book, we have the service of prayer and preaching. That's, that's a divine service as we receive God's word preached to us. But we're receiving that word, which is delivering God's gifts to us as well. But we're already seeing we're greatly distinguished from other understandings of worship where the primary thing is that receiving, again, as you said, the direction is God to us. And I think the main thing that kind of brought that out for me in my own development and so forth was actually Reverend Dr. Arthur Just. In his book, Is It Heaven on Earth? I think it's called, where he talks about the liturgy. He talks about this in the development of even that term liturgy, which from the old Latin, liturgia, which was your service to the empire. And he describes like in the Roman Empire, you would have a section of land. It was kind of like adopt a road or whatever, a section of the road, the public land and so forth that you were responsible for as a citizen of the empire to care for and make sure that it was kept up and things like that. That was their liturgia to the empire was to serve by caring for that. And the Christians took that term, he describes, and applied that. So yet another term that we have that we'll freely use is liturgy, the liturgy of the church. But when the Christians used it, they used it in this divine service way. No, it's the service that God does for you that then enables you to serve in his kingdom. And I think our communion service, especially the post-communion collect, reflects that really well, right? That this would strengthen us in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. When we understand the direction and the receiving going on, it, it influences how then we go out and live in that service. Primary focus, again, coming from God to us. Definitely. And it means that the first matter of participation that the Christians attending, if we're moving now to the actual service that we might have, like on Sunday morning, that the first activity of those who are visiting, or the first point of participation is faith itself, which for our understanding is not our great action of praise. In fact, it's not something that we credit as an action or a deed or a merit of ours at all, but that faith is this gift that is created by the promise of God, that the Holy Spirit himself works in us, that it is the open hand into which the Lord gives his gifts that these public things are now distributed to his faithful. That's the primary thing, which radically alters our understanding if we want to use the word worship service to talk about what we do on Sunday morning or, or what we think about when we go to the church building and gather with the fellow Christians. That worship as we think of it in English, praise, thanksgiving, you know, something I'm offering, that's going to be the secondary thing. And the primary thing is going to be what the Lord, in fact, is doing to us, how he's delivering his gifts to us. If I could just take a moment maybe to go back to the Augsburg Confession, I hope through your work in Concord Matters that people are starting to get the order of these articles because uh, I think it's just a helpful tool if you're ever going through the Book of Concord to kind of have the idea of the general pattern of the Augsburg Confession, which sets the tone for everything, but also that I think the order of the articles tends to show a train of thought that's helpful to keep too. And one of the easiest to see is how we move from Article 4 
which is the one we're on here in the apology already, justification by grace through faith, talking about what Christ has done, his atonement, which is delivered to us, which is the forgiveness of sins, that he's the merit that earns eternal life. We move immediately from four to five, the ministry, which is that we may obtain this faith the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. Through this word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given. He works faith when and where it pleases God in those who hear the good news. So this fits perfectly into what we've already talked about. But it helps to show then how if worship is first and foremost faith, trusting in God, faith having this opinion that we're to seek our salvation and our forgiveness and our life from the Lord, from Jesus Christ, who is merited for us, that the primary thing in worship then is, again, not us, but it's the Lord's words. So if this ministry of the gospel, which includes both the ministers who are delivering these things, but is focused primarily on what it is that they're to be administering the word and the sacraments, these are the primary means of worship. These are the most important things in worship. It's not our praise, not our thanksgiving, but in fact the word and the gifts of God that are given to us there. Which, by the way, leads us to this other word that I want to rehabilitate. It's one that I think as a pastor, uh, especially as someone going to seminary, it's one I got away from. I like it now because it's really short. It's one syllable. And I'm lazy, and I just like to use short words. But when I was a kid, we always talked about what do you do on Sunday? You go to church, right? I think the reason that term's been downplayed among us is because, you know, that old song, the church is not a building, the church is not a steeple. We tend to think of churches as the buildings, which there's another synecdoche, right? We talk about the place we gather for the activity or the institution as the name of the whole thing, even though it's just the building. When you get to the Lutheran confessions on the church, it's amazing how to the point they are. They don't talk about buildings, but they talk about what we're talking about too, worship actually. Our churches teach that the one holy church is to remain forever. The church is the congregation or the assembly of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are properly administered. And for the true union of the church, it's enough to agree about that doctrine, the gospel, and the administration of those sacraments. It's not necessary for all sorts of other things to be entirely united everywhere. So we see when they get to the article in the church, there, again, we have to distinguish, right? There's a church building, which we call the church. There's a church service. We go to church, which happens between 9 and 10 on Sunday morning, for example. But there's also this bigger definition of the church as the assembly of the saints, as those Christians who are gathered around the word and the sacraments, believing it. That includes the pastor, I suppose, the one who's delivering it, is speaking as a minister, not as a one who owns it himself. And then you can talk about the assembly of the saints in a local fashion, right? Your congregation is the church. There's a reason we call that building the church. It's a gathering of the assembly of the saints. But we acknowledge that assembly is bigger than just what I can see gathered in my socially distanced room today. Thank God. It includes all the other services that happen at that building over the weekend. It also, much more, includes all the Christians who are gathered on the word and sacraments all over the world, and not just today, and not even just in my lifetime but going back all the way to the apostles and even back to Adam himself and going forward in time till the last day. So it's interesting in trying to distinguish these terms and make some distinctions inside of them, I think we've actually ended up conflating them all. Uh, and I'm going to argue that that's all right. In fact, it shows how our emphasis in Lutheranism, our confession is that the important thing is faith receiving the gifts of God. 
and how that then pervades and permeates and affects the definitions of what is the church as an institution, what is the church as a gathering, as a service, worship, divine service, and I think as we'll see in some other days too, how does that even then start to affect the little attendant things like the building and what we do during that service time. Yeah, I think this was an excellent way to begin this. And actually, we're going to kind of have a little mini series within a series here. I'm going to have you on for several episodes here. So listener, if you're worried that we can't possibly cover it all in one hour today, you're right. We're going to have Chaplain Denzer back with us for several more as we continue to look at worship and the different parts of our worship. But very good start here to get our definitions. And I would say that chief definition is faith. What is faith and how do we receive it? And that helps us understand the other defining words of what it is when we gather together when we talk about Concord Matters for worship. We're going to take a break here. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Join Christian friends of New Americans for their golf benefit at Greenbrier Hills Country Club, Monday, October 12th. Registration and box lunch at 11 a.m., 18-hole shotgun start at 12 noon. Special price for ladies and church workers. Register at cfna-stl.org slash golf. Not a golfer? Register for our 5 p.m. hospitality hour. Please help us reach out to refugees and immigrants with the good news of Jesus as we help them with English and life skills. Register for golf or a sponsorship. cfna-stl.org slash golf. continue talking with Chaplain Sean Denzer. He's the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain here at the International Center here in St. Louis. And the first half of this show today, it seems kind of out there. A lot of laying a foundation and sometimes as it can be in a building progress and everything, you get all the pieces there and it's like, okay, how's this all going to fit together? And we're going to start moving there. And what I really liked about in that first half is how you so clearly did define for us that we see worship when we use that term, when we're discussing that term, especially among us as Lutherans, confessionally speaking as well, we laid out that from the confessions, Lutheran confessions, that when we see worship as seeing faith at the center of it, worship is seeing faith at the center of it. I really liked how you brought that out for us. And that's going to be the center of how we push forward then and start to get into uh, really seeing this permeate our life as Christians in the world and as also within the church and what we do. And we talked about some of that as well in the first half. So with seeing that as seeing faith as the center of what worship is, where do you want to take us now then? Let's stay in the general place we are in the apology. We're going to move ahead to the next article, though, Article 5, or sometimes it's labeled 3, on love and fulfilling the law. And this is going to be paragraph 33. I notice as I uh, turn to the page that the word synecdoche that we mentioned, that using the term for a part to refer to the whole, is actually mentioned before this. Because they're considering this passage that you probably know well, which is the woman who visits Jesus, the sinful woman who anoints him. This is in the house of Simon, and Jesus uses her as this grand object lesson and kind of rebukes Simon in the course of it, but praises her. And the confessions are treating it because the papists, the Roman Catholic Church, brought it up as an attack on us. Because he says, look, you can tell she is forgiven much because she loves much. And they use that to say, well, love is the most important thing. Love is what earns salvation. Therefore, we're saved by love. And they're saying, oh, no, when Jesus is talking about her great love, he's using that as a synecdoche for her entire act of worship. 
which is such a perfect tie into what we're talking about here. And uh, this is where we get, I think, the best simple definition. If I've lost you so far, remember this, that the highest worship of Christ is faith seeking the forgiveness of sins from him. The highest worship is faith. That's what our confessions end up saying. And I think as we look at uh, paragraph 33 and following, this will really help us. So would you like to read? Sure. So this is picking up with paragraph 33 of Apology Article 5. The story in this passage shows what Christ calls love. The woman came with the opinion that forgiveness of sins should be sought in Christ. This worship is the highest worship of Christ. She could think nothing greater about Christ. To seek forgiveness of sins from him was truly to acknowledge the Messiah. To think of Christ this way, to worship him this way, to embrace him this way, is truly to believe. Furthermore, Christ used the word love not toward the woman, but against the Pharisee. He contrasted the entire worship of the Pharisee with the entire worship offered by the woman. He rebuked the Pharisee because he did not acknowledge that he was the Messiah, even though he performed the outward duties that a guest and a great and holy man deserved. Christ points to the woman and praises her worship, ointment, tears, and so forth. These were all signs of faith and a confession. With Christ, she sought forgiveness of sins. It is indeed a great example, not without reason. This moved Christ to rebuke the Pharisee, who was a wise and honorable man, but not a believer. He charges him with lack of holiness and admonishes him by the example of the woman. In this way, Christ shows that it is disgraceful for the Pharisee. While an unlearned woman believes God, he, a doctor of the law, does not believe. He does not acknowledge the Messiah and does not seek from him forgiveness of sins and salvation. Maybe that first paragraph is just enough, actually, because there's so much there. And remember, this is the main point Melanchthon's making here is that Christ is not saying that she is saved or forgiven much because of her love. In fact, that's why Jesus makes the point directly to her. Your faith has saved you. That's what Jesus says to her. But to Simon, he points to all of her confessions, right? And there's a way in which they have to use this phrase, her entire worship, which is a way of acknowledging, as we said, the slipperiness of this term. And the term they're using is not our English word, but this divine service that she's offered. And this divine service involves two matters. It involves the trust in God, which is born out of his promises and his atoning sacrifice. And there's our outward work, which in her case was a great work of love, to have tears, to give a costly ointment to Jesus, all of these great things. And we start to see how the Lutherans are very concerned with distinguishing, not to throw away the other, but to make sure that we don't lose faith, that we don't lose what is primary, which is not what we're doing at all, but what God has done, in which we put our trust. Are the Lutherans saying that love and good works are not important? Not at all. In fact, Jesus himself is showing off this woman to Simon and saying, look, she loves more than you do. You didn't do any of these things for me. She's a better lover than you are. She's a better good worker than you are. But that isn't the thing that saves her. Her faith saves her, as Jesus says directly to her. How does that then connect into our worship in the narrow sense of our services? Well, there are all sorts of activities, words that are read. And I suppose it's easiest to see this from the pastor's perspective because he is certainly doing things. He usually gets to have the first word in every church service. I don't know why we think we're so important, Sean. But, uh, well, I mean, he's talking. And if nobody else does, at least the pastor's going to be talking. He gets to give a big sermon, right? He, he's the one who says the words of institution. He's not the one who sings hymns in our 
churches, actually. In fact, I don't even get to sing the communion hymns at all, which is kind of sad. But you could get distracted. You could think that worship really consists and God is most pleased in and, and the heart of the matter is all of these things that we do all of these words that we say, all of these actions that we take, and you could do that either on the pastor's side because he seems to have a little more to say or he gets to start it all, or you could do it from the people's side, though, that they have all of their works and hymns to say too. And to think that those are the essential aspects of worship, particularly the bare, naked doing of them, regardless of what you think or what's going through your mind and heart. And as Melanchthon shows in here, the entire act of worship embraces and cares about all of the stuff externally that is done. But those things are confessions and expressions of faith that is in the heart first and foremost. And it is that faith which leads to all the rest of that that is the heart of the matter for worship. I'll go on and read uh, 34 now, to, which I think sums that up again. So Christ praises her entire worship, her entire divine service. And this often happens in the scriptures, that by one word we embrace many things. Below we'll speak at greater length of similar passages. Again, we have the statement that the entire worship is what needs to be considered. Because that's where we see that the forgiveness of sins is what is at the heart of the matter that then leads to all of the other external things that we tend to call worship. If I can jump ahead a little bit to uh, paragraph 189 in the same section, we'll see this summed up again by Melanchthon. I'll read. So the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. On the contrary, worship of the law is to offer and present our gifts to God. However, we can offer nothing to God unless we've first been reconciled and born again. So do you see that how they're not making this distinction in order to throw out the law or throw out good works or even to throw out ceremonies and scripture readings and liturgies and hymns, but they're doing it to say what is primary and what in fact should those external things point back toward. And that's faith. That's faith in the gospel, faith in the merits of Jesus Christ. And just as you've really missed the point of worship if you're not thinking about faith and what God has done for us first, you also miss the point of worship if you start to think that by doing any of these other things, you're actually pleasing God or you're meriting salvation. And this is the danger that our confessions want to guard against, that we turn worship itself not into God's great delivery of his gifts, but into the earning of salvation. Because if that's the case, we're the ones who tend to think we're doing the actions in worship. And pretty soon, we come to the opinion that we are earning God's favor by what we do. That's what the Roman Catholic Church at the time was teaching, and that our church was trying to distinguish the truth against. I think this is so foundational for how we understand the importance of coming to churches. One of the images that I commonly use in my catechesis, especially with junior confirmation, is something they can understand real easily. And it's a common one that's been out there for a while. If I, Pastor Sean, were standing in the church and I'm handing out a million dollars to take care of all of your debts, to set you up for a, a nice life, to live in comfort and everything, who's not going to move heaven and earth to be there to receive? The only way you get it is to come and right. be there and you're going to receive that million dollars. That's what I'm handing out. I mean, that church will be packed every time and they're going to go out and they're going to do good things for their family. I'm sure they might do some selfish things with that money as well, but they're going to do good things and providing for their family and setting up and hopefully living debt free and those sorts of good works that are going to flow forth from, hey, I've got a million dollars to work with here now, right? But I'm the same guy, Pastor Sean, I'm in the church and I'm handing out forgiveness, life and eternal salvation, which is of greater worth. 
Yeah. And this it seems so, so simple. And yet how often our sinful nature twists it around and does exactly what the Roman Catholics did, which you just laid out so well, and, and makes it about our work, the pastor's work, or, you know, just by the mere function of sitting there that we're somehow doing God a favor or something. And it's just like, how did we get here? I mean, we just don't understand what a true treasure we're actually receiving here. Every once in a while, I like to reference good books if folks want to check out more things and things like that. And one very excellent book written by Clement Preuss, Pastor Clement Preuss, who has now received the promise of our Christian faith and is at rest with Christ, but he wrote the book, The Fire and the Staff. And I love this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes, and I think impacts how we even understand some of the decisions that need to be made for our churches at this time of pandemic and things like that. Are we open? Are we not open? And what are we doing and so forth? And this, I think, is an excellent quote. It says, If the divine service is viewed primarily as our praising God, then you can do that just as well at home. But if the service is understood as God giving us the forgiveness of sins, then you've got to be there. It's very possible that the low attendance at Sunday services seen in so many churches today is a reflection of how we define the service. If I'm acting, then I can do it another time. If God is acting, I better be there. I think that's an excellent point that summarizes exactly what you just laid so well for us, drawing from the confessions. And what we're confessing here is that God is the actor in faith. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But he has called me by the gospel. It's our confession of the third article of the creed, right? He has enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in his truth. This is delivered to me in and through the church. Precisely. And our Lutheran understanding of church, it's so helpful to see. Our Lutheran understanding and definition of church is not the hierarchy of ministers. It's not the institutional authorities, that is, the human earthly institutional authorities. And that always remains, even to this day, the primary definition of the word church for the Roman Catholic Church. It's when you say what Holy Mother Church says, you really mean what the ministers and the Pope says. For us as Lutherans, church has to do with the word of God and the sacraments being administered among faithful believing Christians, right? That doesn't exclude the pastor, but it certainly also doesn't diminish or exclude the laity. It is simply saying it has much more to do with the things creating this church, gathering these people. And that is the means of grace, the word of God and the sacraments, the gospel going forward and creating faith. And then people who are, of course, coming back again and again, gathering together because they've got the opinion like this woman did. I've just got to have what Jesus had. And no surprise, there's all sorts of love and good works and ceremonies and thanksgiving and praises that happen all around that too. And that's why I actually think we ought to rehabilitate this word church, talking even about the service, like we're going to church, we're having church, we're at church. It's gotten a bad rap probably for the very reason you brought up, because we've turned into all these things we could just as easily do out in the world, and, and maybe we could do them better. If you want to love your neighbor, I mean, it's a great loving thing to have a chat with them over the cookies after service, but it's probably better if you went and helped them fix their house or got them groceries or whatever it is you're able to serve your neighbor for. Go to work and do a good job. But what we talk about when we're interested in gathering as the church, assembling together, why it's not actually optional for us, is we want to have the Lord's word be spoken to us. We want to receive the forgiveness of sins. We want faith to be strengthened, and faith comes seeking all of those gifts. And that's why we take the time to gather together on usually Sunday morning, but many other times for this divine service, what, what in English we're forced sometimes to call worship. 
Yeah, I like what you said there that the woman, she just had to get there to get from Jesus what he has to give her. And she knew she was going to receive scorn from, quote unquote, the holy men, the, the religious leaders at the time, right? She knew that it might even be difficult to get into him. I mean, constantly crowds were pressing in around him. I mean, at one point, friends had to open up a roof to let their friend down in to get to Jesus, right? But once again, why were people in scripture willing to take that risk? It's to receive from him what he has to give. And that will inspire great love in us. You see that happen all the time. They can't stop talking about, hey, you know what I got from this Jesus guy? It's amazing, right? And and we're willing to risk it. And I think that is very informative for us, again, when we talk about our gathering together as the church. Times of persecution, why are people willing to risk their lives to meet in secret for this? Because it's the place that you gather together to receive from Jesus what he has to give you. And that's more precious. Take they this life, good fame, child and wife, though they all be gone, the kingdom ours remaineth, right? I mean, this is the confession of the church. Why is it worth the risk of spreading sickness and possibly, again, not to say that we don't take precautions in a time of pandemic and great sickness being spread around and things like that. We certainly do take precautions to protect our neighbor. That is a loving thing to do, but it's still not an option for us. We got to gather together as the church because there we gather around Jesus and receive from him what he has to give us. Ah, again, what what is it that creates faith? It's the gifts of God. It's the conviction that the merits of Jesus Christ are, in fact, the only thing that can save us, redeem us, give us hope in a future, and give us a life that lasts. In fact, it, it leads us to, to be so bold as to say we expect the resurrection of the dead, as the creeds say. And you're right. That is what leads people to say this is the most important thing in the world. That's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get. I'm going to seek this out. The means of grace that nourish our faith, that sustain it, and Christ who gives and distributes to us his forgiveness of sins. And there's all sorts of love and thanksgiving that comes when you recognize the greatness of that gift. And if I might say, too, it, it's primarily the love of Christ to us that he loves me, the sinner, to show me his mercy and to forgive my sins. It's the love of Christ that we're talking about. And that's the only place that we have any real love for the neighbor, which we can certainly talk about as kind of another topic and so forth. But that's ultimately what's being brought out in this as well, right? It's receiving the love from Christ that strengthens for love for the neighbor. And so the Roman Catholics are just only looking at the love for the neighbor. And as we constantly say in there, you don't actually have real love because it's not centered in Christ's love to you. You've got it. You've got it. You can't have the latter without the former. You can't have the service and the worship that we use generally, which is the easy things to see, the external works, the are you singing a hymn of praise? Are you serving somebody else? If you want to take Paul's living sacrifice statement to heart for what our worship really is. But none of that happens without faith, right? Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. Apart from faith, you don't get these works. And it's interesting, when we saw that mentioned in the first section that we read, that the Roman Catholics struggled with this definition of worship, or even this definition of salvation as having so much to do with faith, because they thought of faith primarily as historical knowledge, as just knowing things, as just having a name on you, like I'm a Christian. I think we hear that criticism of our statement, go to church is important, we have to be in the divine service. And sometimes the objection is, well, you know, to be standing in a garage doesn't make you a car, and to be sitting in the pew doesn't make you a Christian. And the confessions certainly have something to say about that when it comes to unbelievers in the church. But when we're talking about urging people to come to the divine service, when the confessions are extolling this worship and maybe downplaying the external things, it's precisely to say, because we're concerned about faith, 
We're concerned about teaching the gospel. We're concerned about having engaged members of the congregation and even so much to say participants in the divine service. And we'll talk about this more on other days, but this is what the Lutherans get into most of all when they start actually discussing the Mass, which is to say the divine service with Holy Communion and all of the abuses that had happened in the Middle Ages. They attack most of all this phrase to just do the work for the sake of doing the work, and by working it, it works. And they say, what's missing in this picture? It's faith. It's the promises of God that enliven the heart, that instruct it, that teach it. And it's the person believing and trusting in those promises, which is where true good works come out of, and true love for the neighbor flows from, as you said so well. And when that is missing, as it was in so many places, you can still have all sorts of activities and works, but they're not going to be the Lord's good works. And they're certainly not going to be able to merit salvation since even the true love and good works that we do don't accomplish that. So with about five minutes left in the show here, this show, we're going to have you back for more to cover a lot more here. But with the last five minutes here, I want to kind of draw these things together. And you were just talking about, again, kind of the traditions that we have in the church, the things that we do and so forth that can easily become about our works. But once again, that direction is God to us informing our works out in life. And that's going to inform then how we conduct our services together. Definitely. To understand divine service, as we generally explain it these days, is the Lord's service to us, his promises, which create faith. That is the highest worship, the faith that seeks the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And out of that then flows our praise, our thanksgiving, which includes our works of love in the world, as well as our, we might say, all of the details of the service in praising God and thanking him too. Okay, we spent a lot of time today distinguishing. I think it would be great to look at some of these details as we start to shift into what does Lutheran worship, as in what does a Lutheran church service look like, to see how our confessors, our Lutheran confessions, describe their understanding of a church service and how we'll see that they don't just say, okay, now we're going to talk about the details so we can forget about everything we just said, but they have the theology at the heart of it, informing why they're doing what they're doing, why they're glad to receive, in most part, what we'd always done in the Western Christian Church, but why they understand it as serving this number one purpose, which is to create faith in Jesus Christ and to nourish it and sustain it until death. So a great place to go would be back to our Lutheran Confessions, Apology Article 15 of Human Traditions. Perfect. I think uh, we start at paragraph 38 would be a great place. Okay. I'll let you read and I'll just comment as we go through it, okay? Sounds great. All right. So this is paragraph 38 of Apology Article 15 on Human Traditions, so what we do in the church. We cheerfully maintain the old traditions made in the church for the sake of usefulness and peace. We interpret them in a more moderate way and reject the opinion that holds they justify. So two points there. One, that we're not demanding that everybody do these things or else you go to hell. And the reason is these things don't get you to heaven in the first place. They're not meriting our salvation. Jesus does that. Continue on with paragraph 39. Our enemies falsely accuse us of setting aside good ordinances and church discipline. We can truly declare that the public form of the churches is more fitting with us than with the adversaries. 
If anyone will consider it in the right way, we conform to the canons more closely than the adversaries. See, we're making a distinction between faith and the resultant works, but we're not throwing away those other things, and it holds true even in the human ceremonies. We don't throw these things away. We just want to make sure you're not confused on what the real worship is. Among the adversaries, unwilling celebrants and those hired for pay, and very frequently only for pay, celebrate the masses. What's missing among our opponents? Faith, the most important thing, with which the rest of it is just worthless or less. Just a work that they're doing, yeah. uh, which then plays out in a few things they list here. They sing psalms, not that they may learn or pray, but for the sake of the service, as though this work were a service, or at least for the sake of reward. Among us, many use the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. Okay, so now we're talking about among us. They do so after they have been first instructed, examined, and absolved. Yeah, we're not just going to the Lord's Supper because I think that's what we're supposed to do. God would be pleased by it. No, it's got a gift to deliver. And so we want them to come with faith, with that opinion of the woman who came to Jesus seeking his benefits. I love this next one. The children sing psalms in order that they may learn. I'm just going to comment on that one. I mean, that's exactly the whole point. We don't sing songs just because they sound beautiful or we want to make this some awesome worship to God. It's so that they may learn their faith, to confess their faith. Yeah, and the next one, and the people also sing so that they may either learn or pray. That's why we sing. We sing to learn. We sing to be praying. We sing to be telling this story and witnessing to our neighbors and to our own hearts about what is our salvation, our merit in Christ Jesus. And you notice how Lutheran worship is participatory as a result. Faith doesn't lead us to be unworking. It leads us to be, in fact, working all the more so that faith may continue. And it comes back to this idea, among the adversaries, there is no catechizing of the children, whatever, about which even the canons give commands. Among us, the pastors and ministers of the churches are encouraged publicly to instruct and hear the youth. This ceremony produces the best fruit. This word canon here, not talking about weapons, we're talking about old, ancient, in fact, go back to the councils when the creeds were written. Commands, rules, bylaws, you might say, for the Christian church. And what do bylaws always come about through? Problems, right? We got to correct this problem, so we're going to make a rule, right? Well, these rules were to try to correct the problem of nobody was teaching, nobody was attending to the faith, they were just going through the motions. If you're concerned about that, just going through the motions, then you're concerned about the very same thing that our Lutheran forefathers. Among the adversaries in many regions, no sermons are delivered during the entire year except during Lent. Yet the chief service of God is to preach the gospel. When the adversaries do preach, they speak of human traditions, of the worship of saints and similar trifles, which the people justly hate. Therefore, they are immediately deserted in the beginning after the reading of the gospel text. A few better ones begin now to speak of good works, but about the righteousness of faith in Christ and the comfort of consciences. They say nothing. Indeed, this most wholesome part of the gospel they rail at with their reproaches. On the contrary, in our churches, all the sermons are filled with such topics as these, repentance, the fear of God, faith in Christ, the righteousness of faith, the comfort of consciences by faith, the exercises of faith, prayer, what its nature should be, and that we should be fully confident that it is powerful, that it is heard, the cross, the authority of officials, and all civil ordinances, the distinction between the kingdom of Christ or the spiritual kingdom and political affairs, marriage, the education and instruction of children, chastity, all the offices of love. From this condition of the churches, it may be determined that we earnestly keep church discipline, godly ceremonies, and good church customs. In that little distinction, which focuses, interestingly enough, not on ceremonies or 
the parts of the worship service, the liturgy we usually call it, but focuses on preaching and what is the topic of what's being said and delivered. We see how faith in Christ Jesus with all of its proper attendance is the center. And that's a perfect reason for why we want to use the word church and divine service to talk about worship, so that we keep the primary thing primary, faith in Jesus Christ, who alone has merited our salvation, in whom we are to put all our trust, and from whom flow all of our thanksgiving and our love for the neighbor as well. You said it well today. Worship is seeing faith at the center of all of it. Great foundation to lay. I love transitioning into some of the nitty gritty of what that worship looks like among us as Lutheran Christians. Give us a quick preview of where you're going to take us next week. We're going to jump into some of these details a little bit to talk about maybe the general thing that ties them together, which is reverence, an attitude that we have in worship. And we're going to find out that really reverence is nothing more than what we've talked about today, the hearing of faith and then its fruits. That's Chaplain Sean Denzer. Thank you for joining us for Concord Matters for Worship today. We look forward to having you back again next week as we continue our discussion into the details. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.